Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good morning, everyone. This is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. On behalf of BMO Financial Group, thank you for joining us uh, here at BMO Capital Markets COVID-19 panel and reopening update. It's my pleasure to be moderating uh, today's broadcast, and I'm once again joined by Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer of WebMD, BMO Financial Group's Deputy Chief Economist, Michael Gregory, and one of our rate strategists and Vice President from BMO Capital Markets Fixed Income Group, John Hill. Now, before we get started, just a reminder that I point you toward our BMO disclosures via the web link enclosed at the bottom of your invitation that you have received. Also, since we are talking about sensitive medical information, just a reminder that if you need medical advice, please direct or consult your medical professional uh, as this goes on. Now, just as a quick reminder, Dr. John White is a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. What Dr. White is the chief medical officer of WebMD as previously said. In this role, he leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the director of professional affairs and stakeholder engagement at the Center for Drug Eval and Research at the US FDA. Also just keep in mind as well that Dr. White is a frontline soldier with respect to COVID-19 and coronavirus and currently still sees clients uh, and patients both in the Washington DC and Maryland area. Following Dr. White's comments, we will go to our BMO Capital Markets subject matter experts and first hear from Michael Gregory then John Hill and myself. But with that, I'm going to hand the ball off to Dr. White. Dr. White, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you, Brian, and good morning, everyone. Let's start with the data in terms of what's happening. You know, globally, there are over 10 million cases of COVID-19, resulting in half a million deaths. In the United States, there are 2.6 million cases with 128,000 deaths. And in Canada, we see there's 103,000 cases with over 8,000 deaths. And what's the difference? What's going on here? Um, you know, in Canada, for the last 50 days, there's actually been a steady decline in the number of cases, as well as the number of deaths, a steady decline for the last 50 days. In contrast, in the United States, in the last 14 days, we've seen a steady increase in the number of cases, not an increase in the number of deaths nationally, I'm going to come back to that, but an increase in the number of cases. And in fact, the United States recently had its highest number of cases with over 40,000 new cases per day. Um, and after really having seen uh, a decline or a steady state, uh, we're seeing this increase primarily in 36 states, primarily in the South. Um, and even in Florida alone, there's been 10,000 cases in one day. Um, so what does all of this mean? You know, those sound like sobering statistics and, and how concerned should you be? You know, how do we put this 
you know, all in perspective. And as I mentioned to you that, you know, we have not seen an increase in the number of deaths in the United States. And certainly we have not seen that, you know, in Canada, we have seen an increase in hospitalization rates in some cities and some counties, but overall hospitalization rates have not been increasing. And, um, the number of deaths, as I said, have not been increasing. But remember, the real impact is always going to be about 10 to 14 days behind when we see an increase in cases. So what's explaining this increase in the number of cases? And many of you may have been hearing this on the news. Is it due to increased testing? And there is some element that you're going to find more cases when you test more. But here's the important measure that you wanna look at when you're trying to determine what's the uh, infection rate in, in your local area. It's about the number of positive cases. And in general, you want the percentage of people who test positive, really ideally you want it around 5%, definitely below 10%. But here's what's happening in those cities and regions where they're having increased cases. They're also having increased in the percentage of positivity. So what that tells us me, what tells us is that there's virus in that community, in that testing region, and it's actually increasing. So that's something that we need to be mindful of. And in actuality, uh, Florida has had decrease in terms of the number of daily testing. So we do know the virus, you know, is spreading. But there's no need to have alarm as well in terms of when we look at data, because that's what we want to be driven by is we talk about COVID. Where are the data and, and what should we um, be doing? So we do know lately there's been a greater infection rate in younger people. And we're defining younger. You'll be glad to know is 18 to 35 in that age group. And in general, uh, persons in the 18 to 35 age group do pretty good. That doesn't mean that they don't feel sick, they don't feel lousy, but they typically um, don't require having to get on a ventilator. The concern that we have is that as young people get infected and they tend to even be asymptomatic, uh, are they spreading it to persons who are at greater risk, the elderly, those that are immunocompromised, those with significant heart disease or, or diabetes or asthma? So that, that's the real concern that we have. So, so what do we do? about all of this. And, and I'm going to be completely direct, you know, and honest. We know that masks and facial coverings work. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of confusion about recommendations. You may remember, certainly in the United States, we talked about not wearing facial coverings or masks early on. But as we got more data, as we got more supplies, those recommendations changed. But there's been a lot of missteps in terms of communicating the information and the shortages actually exacerbated that. And you know, if you're looking on social media and other areas, there's a lot of people that are saying that masks don't work, they're causing more deaths, they're causing infections. And, and you know what? If you really felt that way, you could find one piece of data somewhere that might be able to support you, even if it was weak data. But here's an important point the totality of the evidence. And that's what we always want to look at. What's the, you know, the, the majority of the literature? It shows that masks and facial coverings work. 
So we need to be wearing those. When we go out, we need to encourage others to wear them as well. You know, what else has happened, you know, since we last talked? And in, in terms of, if you remember, for those folks that might have been participated in the previous calls, we had a lot of talk about antibody testing and how originally early on we thought that antibody testing would provide a mechanism or a vehicle to get back to work. Because if people tested positive for antibodies, we assumed that meant that they were uh, immune from further infection and they could go back to work. We even talked about they would provide a shield or we'd have these you know, immunity passports. We're not having those conversations anymore. Uh, we do know that there are challenges with antibody testing. Uh, we need more validation of those tests. And we also need to understand better um, how long the presence of antibodies uh, may confer protection. Uh, we do know that it's, that it's likely that it pro provides some level of protection, just as uh, other coronaviruses does in terms of SARS and MERS, but we need to know more information. So right now, antibody testing is not going to be the solution to get back to work, and no one should change their behavior based on you know, either a positive or a negative antibody test. So that's an important point. There's going to be further study, but also keep in mind, you know, these tests are iterative. We didn't have anything, you know, in January, six months ago. And here, you know, we're having innovation in testing. We're not where we need to be, but it's going to continue to iterate. Let's talk a little bit about treatment because even, you know, in the last few weeks, we've seen a uh, movement in, in terms of a treatment. And there's been more data reported out on various drugs, but it's also important to note from an FDA perspective that there are no approved treatments for COVID. There can be some emergency use authorizations, but there's no approved treatments. And there's some you know, additional data that occurred a couple of weeks ago on remdesivir, but also you know, that's really about decreased amount of time in the hospital, uh, recovery time, typically for those you know, on ventilators. The new data has revolved around dexamethasone uh, in terms of, uh, you know, a steroid. Uh, most of the data are particularly on those people that are on ventilators. But we're also seeing, you know, a lot of progress on drugs like tocuzumab, uh, which is for rheumatoid arthritis. It's involved in, you know, interleukin-6. We've seen cytokine storm issue. I'm not going to get into all the specifics. But it's important to point out that we've had a lot of progress on therapeutic interventions. Uh, we've seen the role of decentralized trials. We've seen more regulatory flexibility in real world data. So those are all good signs in terms of treatment. Um, and that's what's important. We have multiple drugs in development on multiple fronts and multiple trials going on. And I expect by the end of summer, we'll have more data. I've talked about vaccines from the very beginning and, and full disclosure, my former boss from the FDA, Janet Woodcock, is on um, the development group, which is called Operation Warp Speed in the United States. And, and I will tell you that even in their discussions, they talk about January 2021, which is actually the winter, not the fall. So we've even moved from the discussion of having a vaccine ready for the fall. Their goal is Operation Warp Speed, as some of you may know, is having at least 300 million doses of a safe and effective vaccine. And I've been pretty consistent all along that I do have some reservations 
about the availability of a safe and effective vaccine. And using history as our guide, it typically requires tens of thousands of patients to participate uh, in a uh, clinical trial on vaccines. And I had a conversation with Dr. Schaffner, who's a professor of infectious disease at Vanderbilt, one of the foremost authorities on vaccine development. And he points out, if you think about, you know, the history of vaccines, 10, 20 years, those were the easy ones that we were able to find a vaccine for. So just keep that in mind. There are seven candidates um, currently under uh, further development. So that, that's important to keep in mind. We just don't have one. But what I want to point out, and I want you to think about, we have to dissociate this idea of reopening to the presence of a vaccine. And, and that's what we need to really focus on um, you know, in our future conversations. We thought that heat and humidity would really cause dissipation of the virus. We're not seeing that right now. So how do we live with the virus? How do we have a true discussion of risk? Um, I don't want you to think it's all doom and gloom. You know, on the, on the health side, on the medical side, we have started to see a return of elective surgeries, 10 to 13%, typically on a weekly basis. We're seeing a satisfaction with telehealth on the part of physicians and patients, but we're all seeing, also seeing more patients go back to a physical appointment with a doctor. This is going to take months to get back to, you know, the capacity for elective surgery. We're talking about, you know, four months uh, down the line. We're also seeing, you know, medication refills, which is a good sign. But what I want to see is us really to have a much deeper discussion of risk who's really at risk from getting COVID-19, who's at risk for hospitalization and death. We want to look at where are infection rates occurring. We need to look at data more locally. We have that ability, but we haven't spent enough time focusing on county by county, area, province by province, area, and we need to do that. But in the meantime, we need to keep those strategies of public health that we know work which is the use of masks and facial coverings, physical distancing of, of two meters, six feet, uh, as well as hand washing. You know, and real quickly, we're, we're focusing on contact tracing in the United States. It's actually back more to old school of, of using physical persons to do that. There's been some talk of apps. There's been some challenges with adoption. It'll be interesting to see what happens in Canada. Canada has announced, as some of you may know, uh, a deal with BlackBerry and Shopify to have a COVID alert um, app. That's different than contact tracing, technically. It's actually an exposure notification. So we'll see how that does in, in helping making people aware of exposure in their area. So lots of progress since March. I, I know uh, People may be concerned about the number of cases that are current in the United States. As I pointed out at the beginning, Canada is doing very well in, in terms of cases and deaths. And it's really about just staying vigilant um, and, and not reopening too quickly and trying to return uh, to pre-COVID because that's not going to happen for quite some time. We do have a new normal, and I, and I look forward to answering questions. Back to you, Brian. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. White. I really appreciate that. We're going to move on to our subject matter experts now, and leading us off will be Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory. He and his team just published a fantastic report with respect to America's post-pandemic uh, economic prospects. So we're, we're going to hear right now 
from our chief U.S. economist, Michael Gregory. Go ahead, Michael. Thanks, Brian. All right, so uh, here we are. We're, we're past the recession. It was the shortest recession uh, in, 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 in on record. Uh, and unfortunately, it was the deepest recession for both the United States and Canada since uh, in the post-war period, which means it's the deepest, most severe recession since the Great Depression. Now, we know as states and provinces have opened up, the recovery has unfolded through May and June, and that's going to continue in the months and quarters ahead. Uh, we're starting to see that in the jobs already. Uh, you know, we lost 22.1 million jobs in the U.S. through uh, uh, March and April, and we got back slightly more than 11% of those in, uh, in May in Canada. Uh, we lost 3 million jobs. We got slightly less than 10% of those back in May. Now, we do get jobs numbers in the U.S. Uh, later to, uh, this week on Friday. We're looking for a 3.5 million increase after the 2.5 million we had uh, previously. So that'll put us up to a 27% recovery in terms of all those jobs. We get the Canadian job numbers next week, but presumably they're going to be sort of comparable. So that sort of begs the question now, when are we going to get back all the jobs lost during the recession? When are we going to get back all the GDP lost during the recession as well? And, uh, and I think you, you put this in a little bit of historical context. And if you look now from a GDP perspective, uh, for both Canada and the United States, the longest recovery period from a recession was uh, from the Great Recession. It was eight quarters in the United States, six quarters in Canada to get back all the GDP loss. So that becomes the benchmark. And then the question is, are we going to be slower or faster than that benchmark? Well, one thing to keep in mind here, we've had a tremendous amount of uh, fiscal and monetary policy stimulus. And because of that support, uh, massive amounts of support, support that was unprecedented in terms of not only its size, but how quickly it was put into uh, play, that that is going to provide a tremendous tailwind for the economy. So we don't think we're actually going to surpass the length of those uh, prior recoveries. We take maybe a, get close to it, but I don't think we'll actually surpass it. Uh, and uh, But that's you know, a little consolation because we do think there are some significant headwinds in the economy that will prevent, you know, a much faster recovery. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, this is probably going to end up being, you know, if not the, probably the, the second slowest recovery in the post-war period for both Canada and the United States. So what are some of these headwinds that we're facing now? Because they're critically important. And the first of those is we happen to think in the absence of a vaccine or an effective treatment or herd immunity, we don't think that business and consumer confidence will fully recover. And because of that, you know, confidence-dependent uh, uh, activities like CapEx, uh, big-ticket household purchases, they aren't going to recover back to pre-COVID levels anytime soon. Now, in fact, when we've seen these cases surging in the United States, I think that just reinforces the fact that where we're vulnerable here in terms of the recovery is, in fact, from a confidence perspective. Secondly, and there's kind of five factors I think I, I like to focus on here. The second of those is the fact that uh, a lot of the people who lost their jobs are going to be the people that are going to get them back, uh, and, uh, and 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 you know uh, businesses you know are, will have operating constraints going forward. Uh, think restaurants; they can't hire back all the people they had before because they're not operating at the same level of capacity they had before. Unfortunately, some businesses will go out of business, so they aren't hiring again. And we do think that in, in this new normal, many firms are going to use this occasion to look at you know how they do things and maybe push for some efficiencies, some cost savings and perhaps cut personnel that way as well. So at the end of the day, this persistent joblessness is going to weigh on consumer confidence even further and dampen uh, consumer spending just, just a little bit more. And of course, you think about the higher joblessness, 
uh, weaker confidence that points to a, a path for uh, uh, savings rates that'll probably be higher than it was before the pandemic. And as a result, that too is a bit of a headwind on uh, on growth. Uh, you look at the business sector. There's one thing that's pretty pretty clear here is that uh, most of the, of the a lot of the government measures directed towards businesses involve some kind of a loan. Now, most or all of that is going to be forgiven. But if you look at the central banks. All of the measures they've done in terms of their asset purchases have been designed to support the credit creation process, which means that the legacy of this great uh, this recession of ours is going to be higher levels of private sector debt, which means higher debt payments going forward. And that's even if interest rates don't rise and we don't think they will rise. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, some of those higher debt burdens are going to result in increased insolvencies and bankruptcies as well. So that's another headwind uh, for the economy. A fourth one is on the government side. Now, we're not looking for any major shift at the federal government level, either in the United States and towards, you know, r- removing accommodation. A lot of the accommodation that's in there now has 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 some longe- uh, has uh, has some built in, uh, uh, you know, uh, decline in it. And in fact, these these programs and a lot of these uh, measures will, will be exhausted anyway. Uh, but where we do see some some headwind really coming in terms of having to shift the uh, moving away from an accommodative to a contractionary policy is at the state and local level in the United States, where many uh, jurisdictions do have balanced budget requirements. And it's not surprising that some of these new measures, such as the HEROES Act coming through Congress right now, in fact, are looking to add a lot more uh, to uh, state and local government support to prevent the kind of layoffs that are likely to result as you get fiscal consolidation at that level of government. And the last factor I like to focus on is slower global growth. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, we can't really rely on exports that provide that extra support for activity that we've had in previous recoveries. And on top of that, that slower growth means that global commodity prices won't recover to the same degree, which, of course, is going to weigh on things like oil prices, critically important for the Canadian, also the U.S. economy. And on top of that, we got this whole issue about um, uh, 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 heating up of the global trade war, which uh, further sort of dampens the outlook for global trade. So all of these headwinds counter, not completely, but a a large part of the tailwinds coming from fiscal and monetary stimulus. And as a result, we're going to have a a long recovery, but not the longest recovery. In fact, we do think by the end of next year, we'll probably be back at full recovery in Canada, the early part of 2022 in the United States. But given that's where we are for the whole economy, the question then is asked then, will will all the sectors of the economy perform the same? And a large part of the economy, in fact, will perform the same. They'll kind of skate along with the whole economy. But there will be some sectors that will underperform uh, and underperform significantly. We think that, for example, and and, you you can round up the usual suspects on this one, you're talking about uh, uh, food services and uh, accommodation, uh, uh, airline travel, uh, uh, arts, entertainment and recreation are all areas of the economy that are crowd dependent and therefore unlikely to fully recover, even when the whole economy is back, uh, has fully recovered. Another area because of the global issues is going to be oil and gas. But at the same time, you've got some sectors that are going to perform. You have some that are going to do much better, are going to lead the economy. And first and foremost of those uh, will be sort of uh, healthcare and social assistance. You know, uh, the backlogs of medical procedures and medical activity that's going to happen is going to push that part uh, of the economy to grow much faster than other parts. Another area I think will get tremendous growth is going to be the information and communications technology. You know, the adoption of, of existing technologies, particularly about people that really hadn't adopted those technologies before during the pandemic, 
has provided a, 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 an acceleration for further advances, I think, in this area that's is going to lead growth further. A final area I think to think about is, is also on uh, uh, food stores and beverage stores. Uh, and, and, you know, with restaurants not going to be fully recovered, you know, obviously people will still continue to be cooking at home and, and uh, mastering their culinary skills. But it's even interesting. You think about the commercial real estate area where, where it used to be a, a shopping mall anchored with a couple of general merchandisers was considered ideal. Now I think the paradigm has changed a little bit where you want to have a couple of large grocers, uh, you know, uh, bookending uh, that mall in order to generate the kind of traffic you would like to see. And finally, I think that sort of the the, uh, the warehousing sector, you know, given the the, the the continued shift towards online shop, shopping will be another area which will outperform the economy. The bottom line here is whenever you get these massive disruptions in the economy, it tends to take some of the trends that were actually unfolding already in the economy and, and, it, and it either, you know, kind of exacerbates them. And I think where we see that most profoundly is in the, you know, the technology side. It's going to take those, those changes that were already unfolding that were inherently disinflationary. It's going to accelerate them even further. But another trend that was unfolding before the pandemic is sort of a, a, a reduction in globalization, whether it was because of the global trade war or the income inequality that was emerging a lot of the, in, in developed countries. Uh, that seems to provide a little extra momentum as well. At the end of the day, we will recover and, and the economy is going to be a little bit different when we get there, but it doesn't prevent us from growing at a relatively healthy pace down the road. And with that, I'll turn things over to my colleague, John Hill. Thanks, Michael. I really like the way that you framed this because the way this translates into the U.S. rate environment is you have this push and pull factor. On the one hand, we are seeing improvements in the underlying data. The worst of the recession is over. We are having months where multiple millions of people are hired back in the U.S. This is all good news. On the other hand, the poll, if that's the push, the poll is that we are seeing an acceleration of cases, that there are underlying longer-term growth difficulties, hits to sentiment, and shifts in the underlying economy that will operate as a drag on economic activity going forward. So. You know, one one factor that I look at very closely on a day-by-day basis is the 10-year Treasury yield. And all else equal, this is an indication of a couple things. It's growth and inflation potential over the next few years. But more, more precisely than that, it's the expectation of Fed policy, of Fed interest rate policy, kind of from now until 2030 on average. As a first pass, that's a reasonable proxy. And with everything that's going on, with expectation that this is going to be a recovery measured in years, not necessarily quarters, that on net, all of these different factors will lead a little bit more disinflationary than inflationary, it's going to keep the Fed with very low interest rates for a very long time. And in essence, what the Fed has done is lowered interest rates as far as they think they can before it's counterproductive. And moreover, they've said, we're going to keep it there for as long as they necessarily need. So they literally use the phrase, they're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates at one point in the future. Moreover, they've gone beyond just that. They've launched a $120 billion per month bond buying program in a traditional quantitative easing, in addition to some crisis facilities where they're buying corporate bonds. And they're really trying to prop up liquidity and credit generation in other markets. So what the Fed is really doing here is they're suppressing interest rates, 
that is, you know, kind of bad for some savers in some ways, but it does make it cheaper to borrow money, facilitate credit creation, and get the economy back on track. But the other thing that they're doing, and I think this is the really important nuance, in by doing this, they are giving fiscal space for the U.S. government to fund all these huge deficits. You know, one question I get a lot is, one question I get a lot is, the U.S. government's borrowing trillions of dollars per year at this point. At what moment does this destabilize the dollar as the reserve currency? At what moment does that lead to a spike in interest rates? I think that moment is still a very long way out. And the reason why is that the Fed has a severely strong capacity to cap interest rates, keep them low, and in essence, buy as much U.S. debt as it needs in order to achieve its economic objectives. And they've committed to do this for pretty much the foreseeable future. So kind of the takeaway when I put all this together is Treasury can issue a huge amount of debt to support the economy and get things back on track. That won't lead to a massive spike in interest rates. It may lead to some upward pressure, and that's probably healthy at this point, because the Fed is going to signal rates are low, they're going to stay low, and we're going to do quantitative easing in order to keep rates lower. And the reality is we're just kind of in a lower for longer environment rates are going to stay low, and we're going to continue to see these push and pull factors where some things are pointing towards higher interest rates and a faster economy. Other things are leading to reasons for caution. And I think the discussion we've had so far really does a nice job of highlighting those different factors, as well as just how dynamic the whole position is. You know, things are going to go up, things are going to go down, but at least for the foreseeable future, for the next, call it several months, several quarters, I would expect these two things to be polling on either side. Um, and, and with that, I'll hand it back to Brian. Thanks, John. Great comments. And we are going to have Q&A with Dr. White, Michael Gregory, John Hill, and myself uh, following some brief investment strategy comments. We haven't talked for a while and a lot has happened in the market. Clearly, a lot has happened already in markets so far this year. So I thought I'd kind of give you three major points and then a major takeaway that we're talking to our clients all over the world about. Number one, a lot of people uh, continue to ask us why the stock market has recovered as fast as it has been, and why did it go down so far and so hard? Well, I think the major point that many of us in the investment world tried to reach out and, and, and find different levels of perspective from a historical perspective, going back to the great financial crisis, or 9-11, or the tech wreck, or the 90s bear markets, or the bear markets of, of the 80s, and even the 70s when we had double dip uh, recession. But the issue is, is that we've never seen anything like this before. The other issue is, I think, given this fact of the information age obviously is increasing, uh, we as a society have uh, relied on bullet point analysis and kind of fire aim ready type of conclusions. Not just that, but also the human element and the personal element of COVID-19 coronavirus impacting all of our lives. I think it really had an emotional slash psychological negative to us. And of course, the media didn't help matters either doing their job, but also feeding the frenzy. And I think that really led to a lot of non-fundamental slash emotional decisions. Then number two, you had this overall reliance on what we like to call macro investing and quantitative investing. 
instead of just looking at stocks and looking at investments and focusing on the long term. In this viewpoint with respect to the reliance on macro investor and whether or not it's economic data or top-down strategic data really has been going on uh, in the investment world for more than 20 years post the tech wreck. And then you add over the quantitative measures where everything has to add up to Z and you're either going to buy or sell. And I think that really is more defensive investing is kind of taken away from the really art of investing. And I think that is why part and parcel, a lot of people missed the lows in March 23rd that we actually wrote about that day. And as we forecasted a 40 to 50% recovery from those lows, a lot of people thought we were being quite flippant and uh, unilaterally bullish. We're not unilaterally bullish. We will be bearish when there's time to be bearish. And then number three, this whole notion of whether or not we're a growth or value market focusing on a 20x PE. Uh, I think a lot of that also was fed by those investors that missed the move, uh, were not fundamental and really focused on headlines and not fundamentally driven. As such, I think it's excessively important for investors right now to do a couple things. Number one, rely on fundamental analysis and themes. We don't want you to be a growth or a value investor. We want you to be both. We want you to own core portfolios and build those por core portfolios with high branded names in both America and Canada. We also want you to focus on things like company management and cash flow and earnings and valuation. And that's why we felt so so positive with respect to the market recovering that we know in our heart with respect to our work uh, that some of the best companies in the world are right here in the United States and in Canada. And that's why we've stayed so bullish. We still see uh, the U.S. market hitting 3,400 by the end of the first quarter of 2021 and the TSX hitting 18,200. Through that, akin to the, the fantastic themes that Michael Gregory put forward, we are overweight uh, in the United States, communication services, technology, those themes really feed the mobile society. But if you think about technology in particular and the phalanges that it has in every single sector, technology is going to be a very important sector going forward. We also like select areas within consumer discretionary in the lifestyle theme as we continue to work out from home, but we work from home as well. And then lastly, we do like select REITs, which, which really fits well uh, with Michael Gregory's warehousing theme. So the longer term investment side is very important and also works with respect to Canada when we like stocks within the financial sector, the energy sector, and REITs as well in Canada. And most importantly, I think from a yield uh, and cash flow basis, the communication services and sector. With that, we're gonna turn over to the Q&A portion uh, of our broadcast here today. And we're gonna first go to a couple of questions that we have uh, from the audience. And the first question is kind of for Dr. White and anybody else that wants to chime in, whether or not it's John, um, Michael, or myself. And the first question is, with cases again on the rise in the states, uh, and in especially those states, by the way, that have reopened, Dr. White, do you think we're headed for another shutdown? And then one of us on the panel can also chime in. And if so, can the U.S. economy survive it? So, Dr. White, why don't you start us off? Sure. And I've been getting that question a lot. I, I don't think there is an appetite for the same type of uh, shutdown that we experienced, um, you know, just last month. There was quarantine fatigue. There's the reality of the needs of, of folks trying to support their families. But what I think we will have is where we're seeing those spikes, 
are actually in those areas of the country in the United States where perhaps they reopened too quickly. So in Texas, they had opened bars and clubs. Maybe that was too quick. You know, in some other areas, they were talking about starting phase four, you know, in, in Washington state, which would basically be pre-COVID. So I think what we're going to see is a much more surgical approach for spikes in the United States, meaning that they'll focus on the local area in the county. They'll start to pare back some of their reopening stages. But I don't see any situation where we're going to go back to total lockdown. I, I just don't think there's the appetite. And, and I think if we talk more about those public health strategies that we've been talking about, we won't see those spikes. Look at how successful in many ways New York ultimately was, uh, despite the many deaths that they had. And I think we're seeing cases in those areas where people aren't practicing uh, wearing masks, physical distancing. You know, uh, just as uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. White said, uh, th th that appetite for the lockdowns is not there. We have to realize the reason we had the lockdowns in the first place is because we were concerned about the healthcare systems. We didn't have that surge capacity, which we subsequently sort of built up. Another thing to keep in mind, too, even if we get limited, you know, lockdowns, we close the bars and restaurants again, whatever the case may be, is that uh, a lot of the stimulus measures that went into place uh, uh, were after the lockdowns occurred. So now we're in a situation, I think, where, where that stimulus is already in place, it's getting bigger uh, and, and therefore provides tremendous uh, tailwind for the economy. So, so to your, that question that, that, that you pose, Brian, uh, will, will the, sort of the recovery you know, uh, persist? Like, will, will, will we sort of slip back into recession? The answer is no. No, because uh, number one, uh, uh, we, we're not going to have the lockdowns. We, we, we have the capacity to deal with, with cases if the, and we can surgically have, you know, areas of the economy locked down if, if we have to. But more importantly, we have tremendous stimulus that's working its way through the economy. So, so I think the economy is in pretty good shape right now that to weather the storm. Yeah, Michael, and one John, thing that I would add on, okay. yeah, one thing I would add on top of that is the probability or the risk of something like a second wave, something like a surgical lockdown occurring in selected places is already priced in. And the fact that we've already kind of inflated the airbags, if you will, with the Fed cutting to zero, with quantitative easing being launched, with Congress showing an exceptional capacity to provide fiscal support, creates an extremely different financial environment than what we were in in February. So I don't think it's going to be black or white. Like, sure, you're going to see some places like Texas that pull back a little bit. Other places are going to continue to open up. But the financial market consequences are going to be very different, if only because we've already moved to a world where this is a recognized live risk, and we've already had policy support in order to help mitigate some of the responses. Thanks, John. A second question from the field uh, is actually for Dr. White, and it dovetails well with what he said with respect to wearing facial mask, are the plastic face shields alone considered safe enough to protect yourself as well as others from contracting COVID-19, meaning not wearing the cloth mask in just the plastic shield? You know, and there's different types of shields. Many of the shields are also designed to protect the eyes um, because most of us touch our eyes. But here's what I, I'm going to tell you. You know, I, I don't want to complicate things for people because I think too much information it is causing confusion. The facial 
masks and the coverings, there's been consistent data that they're going to reduce transmission. And I really encourage everyone to be wearing them when they're out and about. You don't need to wear it in your car if you're by yourself. You don't need to wear it if you're not around other people, but they do work. In terms of um, uh, a shield, a shield actually is better um, as long as it covers, remember this is a respiratory virus. So it has to cover your nose and your mouth and your chin and do that securely. Those are just very difficult for people to wear outside of the hospital and medical community. Um, if you could wear it right, that'd be great, but let's try to keep it simple and, and wear those masks and coverings. Thanks, Dr. White. I guess um, as, as we talk to our clients, and you touched a, on a little bit about this in your, in your prepared comments, you know, John gets it from clients, Michael gets it from clients, and we certainly get it from clients. Can you go a little bit more into this notion of is now the second wave? And what would a second wave look like to you yeah. if it indeed is now right now? Right. And, you know, people have a lot of different terms. And I get less, um, you know, focused on is this a second wave? Is this one big firestorm that just isn't going out and, and kind of restarts? You know, the issue of the second wave, Brian, has been about, you know, to Michael's point, about really about capacity and hospital capacity. And we're much further along than where we were, you know, in March, um, you know, when this all started or even earlier, some people think, meaning we didn't have enough protective equipment. We now do. We didn't have enough ventilators. We're much further along in the number of ventilators. And look at where we are in therapeutic treatments. We had none before. And now at least we have some data to support it. So it's really about preparation. So if there's an increased number of cases, are we prepared? That's what I'm looking at. And I think we're much more prepared than we were before. Um, so in terms of a second wave, what I'm telling people is it's about preparation and we're better prepared. So if there's an increased number of cases in the fall, um, I think the hospital community, the healthcare community is much better prepared. Thank you, Dr. White. This next question is for John Hill, and it's something that we get asked a, a lot. Um, but the U.S. government is issuing huge amounts of debt to pay for some of the fiscal stimulus programs. Is there a risk that will lead to a spike higher in interest rates? And then can you also dovetail that on the inflation component into debt? Because debt's a huge issue. And can you kind of delineate that? You can answer, you know, in whatever you want, but please, if you could, cover the inflation side and the debt side for us. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. It's something that we get asked all the time. The classical way of thinking about macroeconomics is when the government borrows this amount of money, it crowds out private sector investors and basically competes for those monies, those funds, and that drives up interest rates. What's the, What that's missing is the Fed's modern framework, whereby they have an extremely elastic and flexible currency. In essence, the Fed has come in and decided that higher rates is bad for growth. It increases borrowing costs. So they're not going to let rates go higher. And they're going to enforce that in two ways. Is not only are they going to cut policy rates and overnight rates down to zero or just above zero, but they're going to be out in the market buying $120 billion of treasuries and agency <clears throat> mortgage-backed securities. 
securities in addition to some other corporate debt. They're going to make sure that interest rates in the economy are low. And there's an old adage, don't fight the Fed. The Fed is going to make sure that rates are low in order to avoid that type of spike in interest rates, which would be bad for growth, delay uh, the recovery, and keep unemployment too high, basically violating their mandate. In terms of the inflation outlook, uh, all else equal, you know, I, I can think of uh, nominal interest rates as real interest rates plus inflation. And what the Fed is trying to do right now is get real interest rates, so inflation-adjusted interest rates, as low as possible. The lower those are, the more stimulative their monetary stance actually is. So one of the ironies is they would actually like some increased inflationary pressure because that would push real rates even lower, which would make things more and more stimulative. Um, so while higher debt by itself is stimulative, it does lead to inflation, a certain amount of that would be healthy. And what's concerning, what's comfortable about this is that the Fed absolutely has the tools to fight higher inflation. You know, if inflation starts to go higher, we're talking about raising rates again. If inflation is going lower, that's actually the bigger concern. So while a debt borrowing binge from the federal government will put upward pressure on rates and will put upward pressure on inflation, it's important to keep in mind that the Fed will not let rates go dramatically higher, and they actually would welcome some element of inflation. Thanks, John. This next question is for Michael Gregory. In your report, by the way, it's a fantastic read and very helpful to anyone uh, that is looking at the economy. So thank you so much for doing that. In the report, you talk about how this adage of economies and sometimes bear markets go down like an elevator and up like an escalator, but use the adage up like a stair step. Can you explain that a little bit further and what you're thinking? And how does that relate to the economic recovery, uh, meaning the very slow and boring and uh, uh, slow, another way to say that again, uh, recovery following the financial crisis. Sure. Well, in fact, it was my colleague, Doug Porter, who had sort of coined with the notion of, of uh, the fast elevator ride down and the slow stair climb up. And those stairs themselves are, in fact, uh, the little, little headwinds that uh, I, I talked about earlier. And there's a lot of them. I, I, I mentioned a few, but uh, and, and they, in fact, are to make the recovery process uh, 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 very slow. Uh, but, you know, we've learned a thing or two since the recovery from the Great Recession. And, and one of those things is, is number one, keep, keep policy stimulative. And, and in fact, we, we've very aggressively done that. In fact, through Congress right now, there, there's another package being negotiated. I mean, the HEROES Act was passed by the House and, and uh, it look, makes the CARES Act look, look pale in comparison. Uh, and uh, now, of course, the, the Senate will take that up uh, next month, and, and we're probably going to uh, get something that's a little bit less in size than, than what the HEROES Act envisioned, which, by the way, is about $3.5 trillion in spending. Uh, uh, but, but, but we realize that we got to keep this thing going. Because of those stairs, because of those headwinds, we, can, we, can't, we can't let up on, on, the, on, on the gas pedal. Policy has to continue to remain stimulative. Now, uh, and the Fed has said we're going to do it. Uh, John talked a little about the, their QE uh, that's continuing. Well, another aspect of this is, in fact, all of their credit support measures. I mean, they had basically the last week, uh, I think it was $115 billion of all their various facilities so far have, have bought various uh, loans and, and, and uh, bonds and, and things like that and other money market paper. But, but they have the capacity to buy up to $2.1 And that's only using less than half of the capital that Treasury has, has given it to do those sort of things. 
So, so the, the tremendous capacity to continue to grow the Fed's balance sheet, even when the capacity to grow the deficit start or, or debt uh, it starts, starts to reach some limits, uh, uh, presumably after the after the election. So, so, so I, I do think that you know the, the, that uh, we've learned a thing or two. Even in Canada, uh, they've extended the benefits. The Bank of Canada is continuing along with its uh, accommodative stance under uh, 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 the new governor. So, it seems to me that that we are going to continue with this stimulus to provide a little bit of a push to help us get up those stairs to make sure it's as short as possible. One quick question for you, Michael, I guess, before we go to Dr. White, I have a couple of questions for him. But, you know, as you, you mentioned Canada and the United States, is there something in Canada right now from an economic perspective that actually looks better than the United States? I mean, clearly the United States, largest economy in the world and in Canada's number one trade partner and likewise back and forth. But is there something in Canada that you're seeing right now that actually says, hey, Canada's better than the U.S.? Well, I'm not mature better or worse, but obviously we think Canada has a chance of recovering a little more quickly uh, than the U.S., in, in part because of uh, a better COVID-19 outcome. Uh, you know, the, 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 they seem to be sticking to the game plan in terms of more me- medically verified ways of reopening, and, 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 and that seems to be limiting, you know, any further, further outbreaks. So I think that helps from a confidence uh, standpoint. Another aspect of this as well is Canada is a little bit more exposed to commodities. And while we don't expect commodities to be booming, uh, the global outlook remains pretty, pretty uh, uh, subdued. And, and that's going to prevent commodity prices, particularly oil, from returning back to the levels we had pre-COVID. But they, but they will continue to move higher. And, and Canada is a little more leveraged that way. So I think either from, from just the recovery standpoint, the cyclical standpoint, and plus the fact that the confidence impact of COVID is, a, is a, a little less detrimental to the Canadian economy than it was, say, for the U.S. economy. Thanks so much. That's great. Uh, on to Dr. White in this notion of antibody testing. Some of the recent things that we've heard about antibody testing, is it starting to concern you? And along those lines, do you believe people should actually go get the antibody test? Let's see, Ron. It really is why do you want the antibody test? You know, if it's a curiosity that you think you might have been exposed, because right now with the accuracy of many of these tests, or I should say the inaccuracy of these tests, um, you're not gonna change your behavior even if it's a positive test. And, And I will tell you, the recommendation right now is if you get a positive antibody test, you actually should do it again through a different test to confirm. The good news, Brian, is that in the United States, the FDA has acted recently to take off the market many of these testing companies that simply didn't have the accuracy that we need. And just so you know, we really need like a 99% sensitivity uh, and specificity. And ideally, we want almost 100%. And, And that's a hard measure to reach. What I would say to folks is wait a couple more weeks, I think there's lots of validation tests that are currently going on with some of these antibody tests. Um, And and that's what you want to know. You want to be able to change your behavior if you know the test is positive or negative. So I'd say wait a couple more weeks and and let's see where we are with the accuracy of these tests. Great. I have one more question for Dr. White. And as all of us try to learn as much as we can about coronavirus, and we're clearly not epidemiologists, even though sometimes we think we are, 
what's the best source of information? Again, aside from WebMD, where you were, where where should we be looking to yes, get some yes. clear cut? I was right. I was going to say that. Yeah, I will tell you. I actually have been reviewing uh, Canada's website. Uh, Canada.ca, and there's a separate section on coronavirus. It's really quite good. It has an interactive map that you can look in your individual province. Remember, I talked about local infection rates really are important. Uh, it has some, you know, great infographics as well. So Canada.ca, and then the site uh, section where it's uh, coronavirus is terrific. Here in the United States, I actually do like the CDC's website. I find it uh, to be helpful, even though it's not always user friendly. And the FDA is a very good site as well as you're trying to figure out what are they're good in terms of talking to you about what are their policies that they're implementing. So, you know, those are uh, a few of the sites that, that I go to and that I would recommend. There is the site IHME, which is all the modeling data. But you know what? That information keeps changing and I don't get too focused on what's the latest model, because there's lots of variables in that. Stick to, to those sites that I mentioned, Canada.ca, CDC.gov, and FDA.gov, besides WebMD, and you'll be well-informed. Thanks. I think that's a great way to wrap this up. And just as a reminder, too, uh, for any questions, please contact your BMO Relationship Manager and visit our webpage at bmocm.com and listen to our COVID Insights uh, podcast that will be coming out. I'll also be doing a podcast of a synopsis of all of this. And remember, too, that... Michael, myself, and John are publishing analysts at BMO, and please reach out to your uh, BMO representative to see all the things that we've been publishing throughout this pandemic. I want to thank Dr. White for joining us. Thank you for this great forum. I think it went very well, and hopefully it was value-add uh, to you, the listener and client. Please keep well and safe, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of 
of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.